TUC Radio San Francisco Time of Useful Consciousness The Road to 9-11 Peter Dale Scott is a former diplomat and professor emeritus of English at the University of California, Berkeley. He has written on 9-11, the CIA involvement in Southeast Asia, the drug wars, and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. He also is an accomplished and much-published poet. His most recent book, The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America, was published by the University of California Press in late 2007. Reaching back to the 1960s, Scott gives evidence of cover-ups of domestic criminal acts and momentous secret decision-making by an ever smaller number of players. He investigates how policies of presidents since Nixon have created the background for 9-11. He also shows how U.S. intelligence agencies have become involved in groups they backed or created, such as the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Peter Dale Scott spoke about his new book, The Road to 9-11, at Lawrence Ferlinghetti's bookstore, City Lights. It took me six years to write this book. The whole question of 9-11 is controversial in the whole country and perhaps particularly controversial on the left. There are 15 chapters in this book, of which two uh, directly concern 9-11 and raise questions about Vice President Cheney's behavior on that day ends with a series of about seven questions that I say Cheney should be required to testify about for the first time under oath, which he's never done. Also, there are uh, three chapters before that which are about the rise of al-Qaeda and what I regard as the really uh, criminally stupid decisions that were made by very small groups of people, sometimes only two people, that committed America to the training and arming and financing of Arab-Afghan uh, uh, squads in Afghanistan, encouraging to commit terrorism in what, the old Soviet Union. This was a decision made by uh, Casey, the head of the CIA, and uh, Prince Turkey of Saudi Arabia, and a representative of the Pakistani ISI, the CIA, I have to say, the regular staff of the CIA thought it was a bad idea and said so. But this is the kind of problem that I talk about in the book that uh, since World War II, we have seen more and more concentration of power into very small cabals or groups of people making decisions in secret. And when they make them in secret, that means they make them without the best available advice which was always present in the American government, but just not at a high enough level of clearance uh, to make for a saner policy. I know that Brzezinski, as late as I think it was 1998, uh, defended that what they did in Afghanistan, and he, had, he told a French newspaper, well, what's better, the liberation of uh, Eastern Europe or a few angry Muslims? Well... We have more concern about the few angry Muslims today, which has become an absolute focal point of our foreign policy with respect to most of the third world. Bajinsky's remarks then are an example of the short-sightedness I'm talking about, and the more extraordinary because on the, the current issue before us, which is the possible bombing of Iran, Brzezinski is one of the relatively saner people. Well, I begin, um, maybe I will read uh, the first paragraph of my preface. Uh, and the, the preface is entitled, The America We Knew and Love Can It Be Saved? And all of this book is a disappointed love poem to this country because uh, I'm, in, I'm a Canadian. I'm in this country by choice. I love the people. I wish the government represented the good qualities of the people that I encounter everywhere I go, including, by the way, Texas. I spent two months in Texas in the writing of this book, 
And I, I found the same kind of decency that I found wherever I've gone in this country. So anyway, this is the beginning. On March 17, 2003, President George W. Bush presented Saddam Hussein with an ultimatum. It became clear that he would soon declare a preemptive war against Iraq. It was a shock, a shock that forced me to recognize against my will how much America had changed since I immigrated here from Canada in 1961. Acute social problems beset the 1960s, but dreams of justice and equality were still alive. Today, many of these same dreams are being abandoned, at least by the state. And when dreams are abandoned, a nation's fate is altered. The America of 1961 has not vanished, but it has changed direction. And um, then I say that empires always become bad news for their countries, home countries. One of the things that I talk about in, in colleague with a great many authors, Kennedy and Kevin Phillips, uh, the idea of imperial overstretch. And as I lay it out, uh, you know, no constitution is perfect, but the American constitution has been remarkably durable, at least up until 2001. And uh, has worked very well for America as long as it was primarily a state within its own borders. Uh, the huge expansion of U.S. power that we've seen since World War II has meant that there are many problems to be resolved uh, which are not even given to the constitutional processes of the country to resolve. So in this book I talk about uh, we have not only a public state uh, in this country, the one which I studied when I took political science one, but also increasingly something called a deep state. Well, every country has a deep state, but usually it's to deal with emergencies, with uh, critical breakdowns and so on. What we've seen since World War II is the institutionalization of a state and procedures which are not responsible to the constitutional processes. The obvious example is the CIA, which goes its own way. And it's not the people in the CIA, it's the powers of the CIA, because more than once the people of the CIA were considerably saner than the policy which was adopted, particularly in the era of Casey, because Casey loved to do things on his own with one or two people, make crucial decisions for which you can find no record now. The CIA has been asked to come up with records, for example, of its relations with the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. They can find no such records because apparently Casey used to meet with the head of BCCI on his own. No records were kept, but they were arranging for a drug, a, a drug laundering bank to handle the shipment of arms to guess who, the drug traffickers in Afghanistan. It should not have been a surprise, and it certainly be, has been a legacy which has been uh, very serious for us. Well, at the very beginning of my book, I ask, why have things gone so remarkably wrong in the last few years? And the first point I want to make is, it cannot all be blamed on the weird election of 2000 and the administration of George W. Bush, or perhaps I should say the administration of Dick Cheney and George W. Bush, um, because the whole thesis of the book is we have been building to this kind of crisis for 50 years. Um, uh, I, I talk, first of all, about the enormous disparity of wealth between the richest and poorest in this country, which is very bad for democracy. It is similar to what happened in the Gilded Era of the late 19th century, which was dealt with by a series of progressive reforms, such as income tax and so on, which reduced, at least temporarily, this gap between the very wealthy and the very poor. I make it clear in the beginning of the book that the role of wealth in determining policy in government is far from new uh, in this country. We have Jefferson complaining about the power of corporations back uh, when, when he was still alive. 
What is new is that that power of what I call the overworld is represented within government by the CIA. The CIA was an idea which was essentially born in New York and uh, sold to Washington. Uh, Forrestal came down to be Secretary of Defense. He came out of an investment banking firm on Wall Street. And pretty soon, even under Truman, a Democrat, all kinds of plans for CIA were being drawn up by people like Alan Dulles, who was a Republican. And eventually, Dulles, uh, having designed this architecture for secret power, uh, then moved in already before the Republicans took over in 1953. Uh, so the roots of it are there, uh, but the first chapter that looks in detail about elite decision-making, it deals with Nixon and Kissinger and how they would, um, well, for example, the decision to sell huge amounts of arms to the Shah of Iran in 1972 was a disastrous decision and led seven years later to the collapse of the Shah's regime because the economy in Iran just could not absorb all these Americans and their companies and corporations that had come in to uh, install the various uh, weapon systems that, that Kissinger and Nixon sold. But that was a decision which was made by two people, and I'm going to read a bit about this, Page 33. Against the best advice from the Department of Defense, they gave the Shah a blank military check, and between 72 and 77, the value of U.S. military sales to the Shah amounted to $16.2 billion. Joseph Sisko, the undersecretary for the Middle East, was left in his hotel room, uninformed about the outcome there had been no major review beforehand, and Nixon's decision was passed to the Pentagon with no chance to revise it. Now, that was not an exception to Nixon-Kissinger behavior. That was really the rule. And an example which I take much more time over is the uh, destruction of the Chilean democracy, uh, beginning in 1970 with the murder, that's what it was, of uh, General René Schneider, the constitutionalist head of the Chilean Armed Forces, and culminating in 73 with the murder of Allende himself. When I talk about overworld, it's not just people who are wealthy. It's people who use their wealth uh, to exert power on the political process. And David Rockefeller is a kind of disarming example of this because in his memoirs, he writes as a friendly old man, but... Um, for better or for worse, he, he, he is not in the slightest bit ashamed of the fact that he intervened continuously with the White House on the decision to do something in Chile because of uh, his friend Augustine Edwards, who was a top-level CIA asset and head of the leading uh, daily in uh, Santiago, um, it's in his memoirs, beginning and end, and this naive way said, well, it's a shame there was a rule of terror, but it worked out for the best because we had great economic progress thereafter. Also, may I say, a great disparity of wealth in Chile. And uh, I don't want to be monochromatic about this. You cannot blame what happened in Chile entirely on Nixon and Kissinger, but you can absolutely say that the American contribution was uh, to hasten the establishment of dictatorship, to protect the dictators, uh, even intervening to protect the assassins of Orlando Letelier in the streets of Washington. I think a particularly uh, shocking business. When I f first saw all these demands for the indictment of Kissinger as a war criminal, I sort of backed against it because my father was a lawyer and I don't care for the law very much. And in this book, I give a, a, a kind of mixed uh, evaluation of Kissinger. The one good thing that he did do, which was to achieve the uh, Helsinki Accords, which legitimized the processes for the uh, protection of human rights in Eastern Europe, this was a major event we now see in retrospect in the collapse of the Soviet Union, and particularly its having to leave Poland, which 
having been in Poland, I was very glad to see. So it's not that Nixon had no concern for human rights. He was just a man of, like all of us, limited intelligence, who very fixated on uh, great power uh, relations and saw Chile entirely in terms of what it did to the power ba balance between the Soviet Union and America uh, to a way which I think was shockingly insensitive to the needs of the Chilean people themselves. Let me go back to the, uh, the Nixon-Kissinger era. The 1970s, I think, were very important for what has happened now, and particularly the administration, I almost didn't write about at first, and now seems to have been, to have been the critical uh, administration. That is the administration of Gerald Ford. Not that Gerald Ford was a, a great mover and shaker, but uh, after the so-called Thanksgiving massacre, uh, he had as Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, he had as his uh, National Security Advisor Dick Cheney, and he had as new uh, head of the CIA by the name of George Herbert Walker Bush. And between the three of them, they managed to resolve a crucial issue which had been dividing what I call the overworld, the people in the Council on Foreign Relations. It was a very visible debate at that time whether the future of America after Vietnam should be to uh, start up again the civilian economy or make a major commitment to further arms development. And it was a very nasty fight, and it, this is when the neocons appeared on the scene for the first time as lobbyists uh, for weapon systems like the ABM and trying to stop SALT II negotiations. Uh, I talk about the so-called Team B that uh, Bush uh, appointed in to reassess the uh, CIA's evaluation of the Soviet threat and predictably, given the, who they were, said, oh, the Soviet threat is far, far, far worse than the CIA ever said it was. And um, certainly the books I read think that this was not based on objective evaluation. It was best based on an ideological agenda. But what we had before was a civilian economy threatened, as Eisenhower warned us, by a military-industrial complex that was growing up within it. And I'd say what we have now is that the tension between those two has disappeared, that the dominant economy is the military-industrial complex. And if you say, oh, well, well, we have electronics and we have uh, aircraft and things like immediately when you give those examples, you see that they are adjunct to and accessories to the military uh, effort, that, um, the economy that we have in this country. Uh, so that um, you see, I give a, a, a sample career of somebody who starts uh, in, the, in the Pentagon and he goes into one of the big uh, military aerospace companies and then he ends up on Wall Street. That it's all one complex now, no more conflict. Um, and uh, that has uh, in turn uh, being accompanied by what Kevin Phillips called the greed decade of the 1980s and what he calls the financialization of America. We are not in a producing industrial economy the way we used to be. So much of the so-called increase in, in wealth, GNP, in this country is financial and benefits people at the very top. There's some absolutely staggering statistics here which uh, I, I, I give from Paul Krugman my most creative and original part of the book, I think, is what I write about continuity of government in the 1980s. Originally, what it meant was, how do you plan for a secure succession if there's a nuclear attack and the nation is decapitated? Well, they changed the rules for the planning and made it apply just not to... Actually, it doesn't apply to nuclear attack anymore. It applies now to any major crisis 9-11 was such a crisis, and it was actually instituted on 9-11, and it takes me four chapters to really assess what that means, and we can't really know because this is one of the best-kept secrets about the Bush administration, but I think it meant things that we did see, like warrantless eavesdropping, 
warrantless detentions, a lot of old plans that were planned for COG by Oliver North back in the 1980s when Rumsfeld and Cheney uh, were working with him on these plans. The interesting thing is that uh, Rumsfeld at the time wasn't even in the government, but he was being put by Reagan in a position to plan for the suspension of the U.S. Constitution. And two very good books about this, uh, James Mann, Rise of the Vulcans, and uh, James Bamford, A Pretext for War, are, are very good about the 1980s, but they have it wrong about the 1990s because they think or they claim in their books that the plans were stopped under Clinton. Well, the nuclear planning was stopped under Clinton, but they, they continued to meet. Now, by this point, neither Cheney nor Rumsfeld was in the government, but they continued secret planning, which Clinton apparently didn't even know about, under an executive order from the very beginning of the Reagan administration. Well, this is the deep state at its worst. It's what you, uh, in Europe they call a parallel state, and I have a little digression into the terrible things that uh, parallel states did in Italy, like blowing up uh, civilians, innocent civilians in uh, first Milan and then Bologna back in the 1960s and 1980s. This is not meant to be a depressing book. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I had a last chapter and I wasn't always psychologically capable of keeping the last chapter in. Every now and then I'd say, oh, no, that's just ridiculous. I got a, a last chapter that uh, talks about uh, visionary realism and utopianism and I will just to, to try and make end on a, on a slightly more positive note. You see, I was a Canadian diplomat in Poland way, way back, 59 to 61. But this meant that when you had solidarity in the 1980s, I was very interested in it because I knew some of the key players on both sides, both the, the communist government and also the Catholic intellectual resistance to it. And so I'm now just going to read a little bit of what I write. I think that the, um, the answer for America lies in the middle path between absorption into the existing political process, the way we all line up every four years once again to support a Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi, and a lot of people that some of us are not really very happy about, the absorption into the political process and futile rejection of it. Visionary realism or realistic utopianism favors a second-level strategy of restoring the political process by first strengthening civil society. This will require visionary cooperation with existing elements in society Drawing on the experience of the civil rights movement in the South and solidarity in Poland, the initial emphasis will be less on reforming or breaking down old top-down institutions than on developing and strengthening alternative ones from the ground up. Adam Michnik has described this process of creating alternative institutions as, quote, the real value of Poland's peaceful transformation. How is it possible? It was preceded by an almost two-decade effort to build institutions of civil society. Political thought within the democratic opposition in Poland took as its main objective the creation of alternative structures in politics, labor, culture, media, and publishing. From this, there emerged a complex network of communities independent from the state. This emphasis on the creation of an alternative civil society reflects the views of John Adams as expressed in his retirement to his correspondent, Thomas Jefferson. Quote, what do we mean by the revolution? The war? That was no part of the revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. The revolution was in the minds of the people, and this was affected from 1760 to 1775 in the course of 15 years before a drop of blood was shed at Lexington. Well, I'm very struck by the similarity of those two observations, and I don't think Michnik was aware of what Jefferson had written. And of course, uh, if we're going to do anything like solidarity in this country, 
it's, it's almost utopian to talk about it because it's going to be very, very difficult. As I say in the book, it, it, in, it involves conceiving of asking Noam Chomsky to sit down and talk with Southern Baptists. It's not likely to happen tomorrow, but uh, I think it's an either-or. Either that sort of thing will happen someday, or we will not develop the collective energy that's necessary to turn around the juggernaut war machine that is currently empowered in Washington. Thank you very much. And I'll stop now so we can take questions. That was Peter Dale Scott. He spoke about his recent book, The Road to 9-11, in September 2007. Here now is the question-and-answer period recorded at City Lights Books in San Francisco. What led to the collaboration of U.S. intelligence agencies with radical Islam? Peter Dale Scott. I think that the dominant strategic notion in the whole, as they call it, crescent between uh, Egypt and Pakistan has been, from whether it was Republicans in the 50s or Brzezinski under Carter, the idea is that the big threat there is uh, Soviet communism, and our natural ally in that region is radical Islam. Not ordinary Muslims who just pray and go about their life, but uh, radical Islam. And this is evident in 1953 when they overthrew what the makings of an Iranian democracy, Mossadegh, and installed the Shah with the aid of, of many people, but including the Mullahs. Um, it's not that they were partial to the Shia. The, uh, the, the, in that same era, America was backing the Muslim League. And uh, there's a Swiss newspaper that says that what was his name, the, the elder Ramadan, was actually, from the Swiss point of view, a CIA agent in the 50s. Any activist, radical Muslim, Shia, Sunni, fit the agenda of stopping the communists. Now, ironically, in Iraq, you know, the communists would have been our natural allies, but they, between what Saddam did to them and what we did to them, they're not in the picture anymore. So I call it, at one point in my book, mutually assured paranoia. The Americans were sure that the Soviets wanted to push out to the Persian Gulf and take over control of Persian oil. First of all, there's no question... Uh, it was Casey's brilliant idea to bring in Arab, what they called Arab Afghans. They weren't Afghans and they weren't all Arabs, but to bring in Muslims from all over the world to fight in, uh, in Afghanistan. And not only that, but to train them in terror to go in and commit acts of terror in the Soviet Union. Brilliant idea, right? They set up a support office, the Mahtab il Kidmat. Uh, whose headquarters were in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and most of the recruiting went on in this country because the countries that a lot of these people came from, like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, uh, Algeria, Morocco, there was no freedom of speech or organization for Muslim extremists in those countries. They could only do it in America. And funds were raised in America, and they needed leaders, so um, people who were on the special list not to be admitted to this country, they were admitted, they were given v visas. In the case of the, bl the blind sheikh, uh, uh, eventually he had a multiple visa. He could go in and out as he liked, until, of course, he was convicted for one of the plots of al-Qaeda in, in New York City. Uh, the so-called uh, landmarks plot in 1995. Uh, so we gave a great deal of help to those people, not just in the 1980s. That war in Afghanistan was essentially over in 1987 and completely over in 1991, but we used them in Bosnia. Uh, one of the people in this maktab, now it was becoming al-Qaeda, uh, was recruiting for, uh, for Bosnia at... Um, uh, one of the U U.S. Army bases, he was given a list by an army officer of people who might be willing to go to Bosnia. Uh, how, many people, how many people remember Richard Secord from Iran-Contra? Mm -hmm. 
How many of you know, it's, a, it's in my book, about how he went to Azerbaijan in the 1990s and set up an airline. This is like Air America in Laos, just like uh, the airline he set up for the Contras. And this airline was flying in the leftover Arab Afghans in Afghanistan. Like Something like 2,000 of them were flown into Azerbaijan uh, to... Uh, push back the Russians and to create a more solid dictatorship so that U.S. oil companies could come in as they did come in and develop Azerbaijan oil. It, was, it became very big business and the, once again we found on the U.S.-Azerbaijan Chamber of Commerce Dick Cheney because Halliburton was very big in uh, Azerbaijan. This is something else uh, that uh, I have a whole chapter about Ali Muhammad. How many people have heard of Ali Muhammad? Not many. He's an interesting guy. He uh, was an Egyptian. He came into this country, uh, although he was supposed to be on a list denying him entry. He joined the U.S. Special Forces. While he was on U.S. Special Forces, uh, he went to Afghanistan and fought with the Arab Afghans over there, uh, which from the point of view of his commanding officer, would have been enough to get him discharged, but he wasn't discharged. He came back. He was training people at this center in Brooklyn. The, the, for a while, the FBI were actually photographing him surreptitiously as he trained people in marksmanship and in explosives. This man became the top advisor. He drew, he drew up the terrorist manual for uh, al-Qaeda, which actually, a lot of it was the Special Forces Manual from Fort Bragg, which he, he took Xerox and took up for these people, and then it was translated. He was the, their top advisor on how to hijack an airplane. He was an FBI informant. And uh, I think uh, one of the real unsolved mysteries of 9-11 is that, you know, on August the 6th, the president is supposed to have got this special warning about the, the, the great danger of al-Qaeda al in this country. And it says that one of the senior uh, officers of the Egyptian jihad has been living in California. Well, that's Ali Mohammed. But what they didn't say was, we've just arrested him and he's pleaded guilty to, <laughs> <laughs> to his role in blowing up the, uh, the embassy in Kenya. But, I, I mean, I, once I get started, I can't stop. But, uh, in 1993, he was detained by the RCMP in Canada because we have a different kind of democracy up there. And uh, he said, phone this number, and they phoned. It was the FBI West Coast office right here in San Francisco. And they said, let him go. <laughs> so they let him go, and he went to Kenya and photographed the U.S. Embassy. I, I mean, this is, this is not disputed took the photographs personally to Osama bin Laden, who he knew very well, and Osama bin Laden said, well, put the truck here, he said, marking one of the photographs. So this man, and that's eventually why he was arrested, and uh, he's now in the witness, he never, as far as I know, sentenced. He's just disappeared into the witness protection program. Well, no, well, I'm not joking. Okay, I'm deadly serious. I'm deadly serious. He, he, he lived on the peninsula, and when he was not, were no longer with special forces, they, they got him a job as a security guard for one of the defense industries on the uh, Lockheed, I believe, on the, on the peninsula. And he brought, you know, uh, al-Zawahri, who's supposed to have been what, the, the brains of al-Qaeda, another Egyptian whom he had known in Egypt, he brought him to this country, and they went fundraising around America together. Al-Zawari is somebody else who should, was on a list not to be admitted, but somehow got a visa. So the only point I'm making is, for 20 years, the U.S. had been working with al-Qaeda types when it suited their purposes. Those connections were made. Uh, I myself say officially as to what happened, I know only one thing, there has been massive cover-up, 
And if you read the commission report carefully, you can see where it's the truth and where they are covering up, and that's a clue how to go forward. The decision to stay or not stay in Afghanistan may not be entirely America's. You know, the British sent a huge army of 12,000 in, in I think 1831 or something. One man came back, a doctor. The rest were all killed. Uh, the Russians, as, they, as the Pakistani journalist said, it took them two days to get to Kabul, but it took eight years for them to limp back out, but they were desperate to get out at the end because they were taking a terrible beating, and it was certainly a factor in the ultimate collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I don't think America's committed to Afghanistan per se. I think they are committed to enough military presence in Central Asia, here, there, and the next place, uh, Georgia, was, uh, we're out of Uzbekistan now, but we're still in Kyrgyzstan, to uh, create a kind of, uh, as they see it, protective wall around the Caspian uh, region oil resources that are not as big, by the way, as people thought at one time, but but certainly are a, a factor. And, it, and, this, and then, of course, you have to add in Iran as well. It's not that we need the oil. That oil is going to go somewhere else, probably. But I th as I've argued for many years, the defense of the American dollar depends very much on OPEC oil being dollar-denominated, and uh, so that America needs to have a be the determining thing. And it's not that they want to deny oil to China, but I think they want oil to go from. Central Asia to China on American terms and not on Iranian terms or Chinese terms or Russian terms. And I think this is another case of being short-sighted. I think America's interests would be far better served by a mutually satisfactory multinational uh, regulation of these problems rather than one power hand, you know, allocating for everyone else what will go. But that's the, uh, that's the model for America that was so decisively uh, renounced, first of all, by Cheney back in 1992 when he was in the Defense Department, and then uh, by the whole Bush administration. Of course, if we do go into do anything of that, well, we are already doing things to Iran, let's face it, and now Iran is doing some things back and shelling Kurdish areas in the north of Iraq. I don't think those of us in this room have really much power over what is going to happen in this area in the next few weeks or months, but I, I, I say that to balance the statement that if we were serious about it, we could plan uh, to change the civil society of this country to get, in the end, a different kind of political regime in. That is Peter Dale Scott, author of The Road to 9-11. The next question concerns the presidency of Jimmy Carter, the background to the so-called October Surprise. Well, I have actually three chapters on this. The first chapter is, here was Carter, elected, promising to cut the defense budget, who ends up radically increasing it. Uh, Carter, who uh, appointed almost exclusively from the ranks of the Trilateral Commission, who were talking, you know, trade and uh, multilateral cooperation and development, and the Committee on the Present Danger, which was the lobby gunning the ultimately victorious lobby, nominated 53 people for the Carter regime, and he didn't accept one of them. But he was done in by Brzezinski, who had been the executive director of the uh, Trilateral Commission. Uh, yes, to your question, um, before we get to the October surprise and the counter-surprise, because there was a Democratic surprise as well as a Republican counter-surprise, before that, you have to look at the role of David Rockefeller uh, in coercing the uh, Carter via Brzezinski and Kissinger, both of them. Both of them had Rockefeller backgrounds. And at a certain point, uh, Carter said, the, the hell with Henry Kissinger, I'm the president of this country, meaning he wasn't going to listen to all this bullshit about letting the Shah into the United States. But the Rockefeller forces won. Uh, 
he was admitted. I have a whole chapter as to why that's so extremely important. Uh, and by the way, it links to 9-11 because FEMA was the agency set up by uh, another man who was not particularly a friend of uh, ground-up democracy, Samuel Huntington, uh, whom Brzezinski brought in to create FEMA. And F FEMA almost immediately played a role so that the negotiations with Iran over the hostages were not conducted by the State Department. They were conducted by the banks. And uh, that is the key, I think, to the October counter-surprise of the Republicans. That is why uh, David Rockefeller's people were meeting with Casey and other Republicans because they could keep the negotiations going long enough to prevent Carter from being elected. The idea that the military mission was sabotaged, I have nothing to say about that because I don't know. But he was sabotaged on the political level by people inside his administration, absolutely. That was Peter Dale Scott on Carter's October surprise. The next person asked a follow-up question on empire followed by Scott's remarks on tyranny, Dick Cheney, and a possible attack on Iran. It's very ironic that this process you described, and then I talk about in my book, how a prosperous, a successful um, a state will grow and expand beyond its borders and acquire more and more of the characteristics of empires to the detriment of the institutions that are meant to deal with the, with the state. Um, but one doesn't have to have a kind of pessimistic, Spenglerian notion about this. There, there are different outcomes. You know, some people compare America to Rome and th thinking that after, after us, the Dark Ages. No, there are other states waiting in the wings, like China. If, if we cannot hold the world together, other people will step forward to do it. And most of the empires that have collapsed, Kevin Phillips, in his book, Wealth and Democracy, does this brilliantly, I think. It's a kind of epitome of what Kennedy had done before him. First Spain, then the Netherlands, and then Britain. Uh, they built up into empires and then collapsed really quite quickly because being empires, they got involved in wars that they could not sustain and which uh, destroyed them. But there is still a Spain, there's still a Netherlands, there's still a Britain. Judged by the criterion of disparity of wealth, those are far more healthy societies today than they were when they were empires. So if we are facing a post-imperial future, I would hope it would be one more like Britain than like the aftermath of what happened to Rome. One advantage of tyranny is that it unites people against it. And uh, we don't exactly have tyranny in this country, but we do have, I think, unprecedented disregard for public opinion. I mean, there's an informed estimate of the thinking of Cheney and his crew about Iran is that, that they cannot mobilize more than 35% of the country in support of uh, a, an attack on Iran, but 30 or 35% is good enough for them. Well, that is a clear uh, example, if, if we needed another one, that Cheney does not believe in the democratic way of resolving. I and mean, in fact, he's been very explicit that the whole idea that Congress should authorize warlike actions in the rest of the world is, is a crazy idea. He's dedicated 20 years of his life to reversing the Watergate reforms that he witnessed in the 70s. That, I think, can unite people of all classes. I think it can unite the mainstream, I think a good deal of the mainstream press. I'm no, I, you know, it's part of my schadenfreude that I don't care for the New York Times, but I subscribe to it. And uh, I do agree with their editorials about Cheney more often than not. I think we just kind of have to be very nimble, very alert, and see, see where there are opportunities to build working coalitions against the most flagrant exercises of tyranny. I did give a talk in June in Vancouver, and I prefaced it by saying that I felt this was, I'd been giving t public talks for 60 years. This was probably the most important talk I'd ever given, and it was all about the risk of a second 9-11, a false flag 9-11, 
because that is essentially is what Cheney's plans call for, is an incident. He doesn't say an Iranian incident. I think it, the, the language uh, says an incident attributed to Iran. Uh, so uh, it's like an open invitation for a false flag. So, I think that if we do go into Iran, the chances are better than 50% that it will be in response to an incident, a 9-11 type incident. And if there is such an incident, I would have absolutely no confidence whatsoever that it was in fact Iranian. Of all places, the Council on Foreign Relations Journal Foreign Affairs ran an article saying that if there is such an incident that we should not rush into response this time. We should first very carefully assess what happened. This is what foreign affairs is saying. So um, it comes back to what I said before, that on issues like this, maybe you can create coalitions of like-minded people from all sorts of places, because let's face it, this would be probably the stupidest uh, major U.S. foreign initiative ever in the history. And there, but believe me, there's some very stupid ones back there. But, but this one would take the cake. And I think might be the tipping point in terms of when did America's power clearly go into decline if we attack Iran. And my guess is 10 years from now we'll say that's when it happened. That is Peter Dale Scott answering questions about his new book, The Road to 9-11. What was Cheney's role in 9-11, in particular in the failure to intercept the planes heading to New York and Washington? In order to intercept a plane, you had to get approval from the highest level of national authority. Well, that was Cheney and Rumsfeld and Bush. That's what that, those words mean. Bush was being told to get out of uh, get out of the Washington area and stay away, being told by Cheney. Uh, Cheney, as I argue in the book, disappears at the crucial time when the crucial decision was made. And Rumsfeld, according to himself, he's got three different versions of his story, but they're, they're all about the basic idea that he was so worried about casualties that he left his office. Here's the the Secretary of Defense, the country's under attack, his authority is needed to send up intercepts. He's out helping in the, in the yard of the Pentagon, helping to load people onto stretchers. So it's almost dereliction of office. And in fact, I quote from a very senior uh, military person who said, for an hour we were looking for him, we couldn't find him. I actually don't think he was out putting on stretchers. I think he was in a secret place talking to Cheney, who was in another secret place. And I think what they were really doing was implementing 9-11. Uh, but we, wouldn't, we won't know that for sure unless uh, Cheney is required to testify under oath. By the way, there is a chance that Congressman Kucinich will have a hearing. It's Government Operations Committee. He cannot bring in people from defense. He can bring in people from FAA, uh, and I have, uh, not directly to him, but I've said that to one of the people working with him, that they should bring in FAA and get the FAA version of why there were no intercepts, and I think we will hear it was because there was this new regulation. Then I think you should find out where the regulation came from, and here I agree with Mike Rupert. Mike Rupert's analysis is... What I say now is fact, it's not uh, in question, that uh, after Cheney was finished with the Energy Task Force, on May the 1st, Bush put him in charge of another task force to deal with terrorism. And he was charged to work with FEMA. Well, Cheney had been working with FEMA for 20 years on continuity of government. They knew each other. They were, uh, you know, uh, co-conspirators. And uh, after one month, we get this new regulation. Where would it have come from if not from a task force charged to deal with the problem of terrorism? What I think is simple and cannot be refuted is there is a cover-up. They really, really massage and rewrite history with respect 
to Cheney's role that day. They make it sound as if there was great confusion in Washington and three different teleconferences not speaking to each other. As a result, nothing was done. It seems to me perfectly obvious from the evidence that Cheney was in charge. He had a very efficient network reaching out to all three of the teleconferences and that he made the crucial decisions. So that's where I would begin. So I think that Kucinich should have the right to ask that question. And please, if, you, if you're that kind of person, encourage him. That was Peter Dale Scott. He spoke about his recent book, The Road to 9-11, in September 2007. You heard the question-and-answer period of his talk at Lawrence Ferlinghetti's bookstore, City Lights, in San Francisco. Peter Dale Scott, a former Canadian diplomat and English professor at the University of California, Berkeley, is a poet, writer, and researcher. Since 1966, he has written or collaborated on 14 books. Among them are Cocaine Politics, Drugs, Armies, and the CIA in Central America, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, Drugs, Oil, and War, and, in collaboration with David Ray Griffin, 9-11 and American Empire, Intellectuals Speak Out. He was a frequent speaker at anti-war rallies during the Vietnam and Gulf Wars and a co-founder of the Peace and Conflict Studies Program at UC Berkeley and of the Coalition on Political Assassinations. Visit TUC Radio's website at www.tucradio.org. That's tucradio.org. Dot O-R-G. Please find a pen to write down a phone number to call to find out how to order or download the talk by Peter Dale Scott on the road to 9-11. TUC Radio is free to all radio stations. Your order of a CD or film on DVD or your donation is our only support and essential in keeping TUC Radio on the air. You can find a free download or a CD of the 60-minute version of this talk on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. For a copy of the film on DVD, place your order on the website or call toll-free anytime at 877-TUC-TAPE. The toll-free phone number 877-TUC-TAPE translates into 1-877-882-8273. This toll-free phone number only works from inside the U.S. For calls from Canada and other countries, use the country code plus 415-861-4583. That's 415 for San Francisco, followed by 861-4583. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. Give us a call. <laughs>